Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. The case of the Golden State Killer would not be what it is today were it not for one particular person. Yes, this was a team effort. Yes, without the team, we wouldn't be here either. But it is undeniable that at key moments, probably even by sheer luck and timing, this man was able to push the case forward in ways no one else had. He has provided us much insight into the case, the journey, and the suspect. But we're hoping that with this episode, we can delve into his own story. Please welcome retired Contra Costa County investigator, Paul Holes. Welcome, Paul. Hey, glad to be back. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, How did Paul Holes get into law enforcement? Oh, geez. You know, my, my story really begins when I was a young kid. And I was watching a TV show, Quincy, and I was just fascinated by this this pathologist that was also a crime scene investigator and a detective and solving cases using, you know, all all sorts of different types of disciplines, including science. And uh, I had an aptitude for science and ultimately uh, got a degree in science um, and decided through circumstances that I would end up working as a forensic scientist. So I initially was employed at the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office as a forensic scientist. And then about three, three and a half years into that, uh, a position opened up that uh, was a deputy sheriff criminalist. It was a forensic scientist, but you had to go to the police academy. And uh, that's when I kind of got the bug for "Mm, maybe I want to do more than just the science. So where did you grow up? Did you grow up in California? No, I'm, I'm a military brat. So my, my father was in the Air Force. And so uh, growing up, I bounced all over the United States until we settled in uh, the Fairfield Vacaville area starting uh, in the eighth grade. And then I attended high school in that area and then went to UC Davis. Um, and then ultimately, you know, still stayed in the Fairfield Vacaville area in California, but commuted down to Martinez in Contra Costa County, which is more Bay Area, California. Very nice. So how long had you been working in the crime lab or or part of the forensics field when DNA became a thing? I started in 1990. And when I became that deputy sheriff criminalist position, that's right when uh, my crime lab was starting up a DNA unit. And that's where I was assigned. So in addition to doing the old conventional serology, the ABO typing and the enzyme typing, I was starting my training right away with the DNA technology that was being used at the very beginning of, you know, 1994. Now, I know whenever in our business a new tool comes out, Biagio gets super excited and geeked out about it. (laughs) Were you the same way? I was. You know, this, this is where... 
I'm learning this technology. It was so much better than than the old ABO testing. And I had become fascinated with serial predators and cold cases. And so now I'm looking at this new DNA technology while I'm reading all these old cases that were unsolved going, how can I solve these cases with this new technology? And of course, you know, the very first case that I started diving into was uh, the East Area Rapist case, utilizing this technology. So tell us what happened there. How'd you come across them? That was just a, uh, you know, a curiosity killed the cat type of situation where we had this amazing library for the crime lab. The, the founders of the lab were heavy into maintaining just these books from all sorts of eras across all sorts of different things. And I spent a lot of time in this library just reading. It was early in my career, and I just wanted to know as much as I possibly could. And when I was in that library one day, I kind of, you know, decided, well, there's this file cabinet and that's tucked away in the corner. Um, nobody ever goes in there. And I thought, well, what, what is in there? And that's when I started opening the drawers. And then in the bottom drawer was this uh, series of manila folders that had the tabs were labeled with this red EAR and then obvious lab numbers or case numbers associated with it. So I started pulling out each of these folders, and it became obvious that I was looking at uh, police reports and laboratory reports related to, to a serial rapist. But I didn't know anything more than that, and, and these were pretty much restricted to just kind of the Contra Costa County cases. And it wasn't until I talked to uh, my former boss, uh, who had recently retired, we just happened to be riding on an airplane together to Southern California, and I said, hey... You know, what, what's with this red EAR? And he goes, oh, that's the East Area Rapist. And he happened to have been on the original Contra Costa County Task Force wow. for the East Area Rapist um, as, a, as the, the lab liaison to the investigators. And so he gave me a fair amount of, of detail. And it was at that point I was hooked. I was like, okay, I got to see if I can use this DNA, this newfangled DNA technology to solve this East Area Rapist case at that point in time. It was just a series of rapes that were well past statute of limitations, as far as I knew. And so it was more a hobby than anything. Right. And so step one would have been to see if they're even connected, right? And you guys still had some DNA evidence. How, how was that? Because obviously in Sacramento County, they um, they no longer had the DNA evidence of those rapes. Right. Yeah, no, and this is where the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Office both the previous people that had been involved in the case had recognized the notoriety of the case and had made sure that the evidence from the East Area Rapist attacks that occurred in Contra Costa County, at least within the sheriff's office jurisdictions, had been preserved all these years. And it's the only agency in Northern California that preserved that evidence. All the other agencies across Northern California had destroyed all their, at least their DNA-related evidence. Wow. So that's where luck comes in, you know, in terms of I was the in the right place at the right time with this new technology going, oh, I wonder if that evidence exists. And lo and behold, it did. You know, if I had been in Sacramento, I wouldn't have had the, the evidence to work with. And then you probably would have moved on. Very much so, yes. So it just decisions that have been made before me allowed me to be able to you know, take advantage of that. Whereas people who may have had the same passions and the same capabilities, they didn't have access to that. Right. So you were able to find three rape kits, right, that had been preserved and you did the DNA testing and you found what? So I did the DNA testing, you know, and all, all three kits, uh, there was semen evidence 
and the semen all had the same DNA profile. So at that point, it was like, okay, so the original investigators were right. You know, they, they thought these three cases were related based on the MO characteristics. Well, now I've got DNA showing these three cases are related. So that was reaffirming the fact that there was a serial rapist that was attacking back in the 1970s in Contra Costa County. And you made that connection late 90s. Yes. So that connection would have been made in 1996, 1997. And then what prompted you to reach out to Southern California? Did you know about the original Night Stalker? No, didn't have a clue about the original Night Stalker. I ended up, uh, you know, again, I was just kind of pursuing this just to see. And I you know, in the case files, it was obvious that this Larry Crompton, who was a lieutenant with the department at the time, had been heavily involved with the original investigation into the East Area Rapist attacks in Contra Costa County. So I called up Larry Crompton and, you know, here I am really kind of a snot-nosed kid in the crime lab. <laughs> you know, you know he, he's a lieutenant in the department and, and you know, that's He's got rank. And so, you know, there's a little nervousness, you know, on my part to call a guy that's a lieutenant and and start asking him questions. But he as soon as he answered and I told him that I was looking at the East Area Rapist and then he was just flowing in terms of telling me all sorts of stories about, you know, the East Area Rapist and his involvement and how he still wanted to see the case solved. And so at this point, I'm telling him about what I had done with the DNA, and I was hitting him up about who are your top suspects, because you always have top suspects, and maybe I'll try to get DNA from those guys and see if one of them could be the East Area Rapist. And that's when he said, you know, I can't say there was anybody that was number one. Uh, everybody we looked at, we eliminated one way or the other. But that's, after that, he goes, but I always thought that he possibly went down to Santa Barbara and may have killed a couple down in Santa Barbara. But when back in the day, when they reached out to Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, and this is 1979, early 1980, they said, nope, your cases are not related to our case down here. And that was the end of the investigation into the East Area Rapist Series in Northern California. That's amazing. So who did you first reach out to then in Southern California? Well, I ended up calling Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office. Um, and I don't, I don't uh, remember the, the name of the detective that I spoke with, but I kind of got the same response. So, you know, I said, I'm looking into the East Area Rapist series. You know, I was told that he possibly popped up in your jurisdiction in, in late 79. And the, the investigators said, no, you know, our cases aren't related to that. I've heard about the East Area Rapist attacks, not related. But there's some cases in what he called the Valley, you know, that uh, have DNA. Uh, you might want to talk to Irvine PD. And so that was kind of the big thing for me is that at least he gave me that, right. that insight in that direction. So I called up Irvine and I had to make several phone calls, but ultimately I landed on the desk of Larry Montgomery and uh, told him this is what I've got. And Larry said, yeah, you know, we've got two cases. Uh, Manuela Wittoon and Janelle Cruz that we have DNA and it was the same guy that committed these two homicides. And it was done by the Orange County Sheriff's Crime Lab and Mary Hong is the point of contact there. And so I ended up calling Mary up. And unfortunately, the DNA she used on the Cruz and Wittoon cases was a different technology than the DNA that I had used on the East Area Rapist cases. So we couldn't do a direct comparison. It's just we had one marker that was shared um, and it was the same, but it was sort of like saying, you know, 
her her offender had a blood type A and my offender had a blood type right. A. It was not very discriminating. And so at this point, and, and their their DNA was STR based and mine was an older technology. I had told Mary, you know what, when I, when Contra Costa County gets STRs on board, I will be revisiting this conversation. And at this point, it's still a, a hobby for you, right? Because, again, your cases are not prosecutable. Yeah, my cases are not prosecutable. And, and, and the other thing is, is I was never assigned this. <laughs> never, <laughs> no boss ever gave me the East Area Rapist case to work. Um, I just kind of grabbed it and ran with it and kept it with me throughout my career. That's amazing. Um, so then it was, what, 2001 when you finally got the technology that allowed you to get the STR profile? That's right. And at this point, I had promoted up. I was a supervisor slash manager over uh, the criminalistics section. So I assigned a DNA analyst to do the East Area Rapist Contra Costa County DNA cases in the new STR format. And then he got that STR profile. And I, and I just told him, call Mary Hong. You know, I talked with her four years ago. This was just really, at this point in time, I was just thinking this was just due diligence. You know, just give her a call. Was not expecting anything. It just come back as being two different, you know, offenders, two different DNA profiles. And, and then we would just move on. And then that's not what happened. And that's not what happened. No, I'm back in my office and that analyst walks into my office and basically tells me, oh, they were the same. And, you know, he was very matter of fact about it. Uh, you know, that, that was kind of his personality. But I'm sitting there and my my head is spinning because now I'm going, OK, so now I've got this East Area Rapist series in Northern California because I now knew more about the, the series and what I did when I first started. And now we've got homicides that are connected. Um, and I immediately get on the phone with Mary um, and she tells me that a detective by the name of Larry Poole was the one that was handling the cases for Orange County Sheriff's Office. So I called up Larry Poole and that's when he says, well, it's more than just Orange County cases. We've also got Ventura and Santa Barbara. And in essence, he's the one that tells me this original Night Stalker, as he was known down in Southern California, you know, they believe he killed 10 people. Wow. And at this point, that's when I realized, oh, this is huge because we have 50 attacks committed by this guy in Northern California where we have living victims. We have victims giving descriptions on who attacked them and, and behavioral stuff and what he stated um, and where he was at at certain points in time that Larry didn't have for these homicide cases because his victims were dead. Right. So I just went in. I'm just feeding Larry all the information I had, thinking it's just a matter of time and he's going to get this case solved. So it's now this huge moment. 2001, you've connected. You're talking to Larry Poole and you're thinking any day now he's going to be able to just solve this with the information that we're able to provide uh, from Northern California. And then nothing. <laughs> you know, they do Prop 69, they get the felon database going, and also nothing. And so what was that process like over, you know, from 2001, really to 2016, that 15 years, these ups and these downs? And what was that like? Well, you know, it's interesting from my perspective, because I ended up, you know, once I kind of finished sharing everything with Larry Poole, you know, I really backed away. I was not doing anything related to this case, except I would get the occasional phone call. Somebody's calling a tip in. I'd pass that on down to Orange County Sheriff's Office. 
And then, you know, there was some media attention in the late 2000s on it. So I did some interviews on that. And and those interviews were really me having made the DNA connection. That was my claim to fame on the series. But the case kind of fizzled. Larry Poole ended up getting moved out of that cold case unit. And then nobody was really actively investigating these cases from either Southern California or Northern California. But like during this time, you're obviously busy doing other things. You're covering other big cases. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, you know, and that's that's just it. As I was so busy, you know, I had my my management responsibilities running a, a crime lab. I had my other cold case interests, other cases I was passionate about that I was actively working. You know, so the the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker series kind of was one of those things that it was there for me, but it wasn't something that I was putting much energy on. It was just that Southern California's deal now. They're the ones with the homicides. Right. So what are some of the other big cases you remember working on during those 15 years that really kind of stand out to you? You know, right right around that time frame, uh, in, in that 1998 to 2001, uh, we had this uh, unsolved series of, of prostitutes in Pittsburgh, California, that also included a 15-year-old girl, Lisa Norell. Uh, I spent a ton of time working that case. In fact, I was more known by local guys and law enforcement in the the area for that particular series than the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker series. And then, of course, you know, I had Lacey Peterson wash up in in Contra Costa County. So I had some peripheral involvement with uh, some evidence aspects related to Lacey and and Connor Peterson and getting an anthropologist, uh, Dr. Allison Galloway, involved on that case. You know, later on, I got heavily involved with uh, J.C. Dugard and Phil Garrido's property and numerous cases. You're always catching new cases. And I was constantly being pulled in by agencies on their their weird and bizarre cases. Uh, You know, that was sort of my niche. And, you know, I was staying very busy. So the fact that I wasn't doing anything on, on ear ons or anything real active on, on East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker doesn't mean I was just sitting around twiddling my thumbs. I had a lot going on during that time frame. But Paul Holes did get pulled back into the Golden State Killer case full time after one chance conference call that introduced him to investigative genealogy. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Continuing here with Paul Holes. Um, Paul, you were saying that for a period of time there in the early 2000s, the Golden State Killer case was sort of on the back burner for you. At what point then did you get pulled back into the case? Was it when the task force was formed or or at what point did you really dive back in? So this was this was after I promoted up again and I became um, the chief of forensics, which is a division commander position within the sheriff's office, very much administrative. And I was bored out of my skull. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my office and I always 
of all the cases, I always kept the East Area Rapist files, those original files I found in the library. Every time I moved my office, those files came with me. So I'm now the chief and I'm sitting in my office looking at my file cabinet with those files in it. And I'm just like, I've got a stack of memos that I need to do and spreadsheets and everything else from the administrative side that I really didn't want to do. So I'm looking at these Dare Rapist files going, you know, that case is still unsolved. And that's when I just kind of cracked that file drawer open and started going through them and basically formulated a game plan on how I was going to attack this, this series investigatively. And uh, at that point, I was basically 24-7, 365 on the Golden State Killer case again from 2011 on. 2011. And then at what point did the task force get put together that now you were communicating with these other jurisdictions? Yeah, so I ended up, I, I developed what I thought was a really good suspect from my dive into these files. And, uh, you know, Anne-Marie Schubert, she was a, a DA, a deputy DA at the time, and she uh, had been active when we first had the DNA link to Southern California. She had, that's when I first met Anne-Marie, and, and uh, she had demonstrated a passion for the cases. So I remember talking to her saying, hey, I think I've, I've got a guy. And she goes, you know, there's this Paige Neeland up at Sac Sheriff's office that's involved in the cases, as well as uh, uh, Ken Clark. And then ultimately, Ken Clark and I talked, and Ken was saying he had been talking to a Gary Kitzman down in Santa Barbara. And then we just got chatting, and it was like, we need to get everybody in the same room, because you're doing something that I don't know about. I'm doing something you don't know about. Gary's doing something. And that really was the beginning of the task force. That's when we all got into the same room, and we formed professional relationships, and in fact, friendships you know, that lasted through the years on this case. And we continue to help each other. Even to this day, I'm still talking to some of these people, even though I'm retired. Yeah. It's great to hear that, you know, it really was an organic coming together from the ground up, from the investigators who were boots on the ground doing this. Yeah. You basically, you had, you had, a, a, you know, individuals that all just like me had a passion for this case. Um, and we recognized that, you know, the, the group together had a greater likelihood of being successful than us individually. That's really cool because you don't often hear about people, uh, you know, sharing information and coordinating. And in today's world, it always seems like there's all this bureaucratic red tape. So it must have been refreshing to be like, hey, I'm part of a team and we're all sharing information. It was. And in many ways, you know, it's a model for interagency sharing. You know, this was after we did this, this is the first time I was reading all of Sacramento's East Area Rapist reports, or I'm reading um, the homicide reports in Southern California. So my knowledge about the cases expanded exponentially, as did everybody else's. And that's just so critical when you have an offender that is, is crossing jurisdictional lines is that these jurisdictions need to coordinate amongst themselves in order to really maximize their potential to be successful. And then how did the 2016 kind of big press conference FBI reward come about? Well, that really was uh, a discussion up between Sacramento Sheriff and the FBI. And, and I believe it originated, it could have originated with Anne-Marie Schubert, or it could have originated between uh, Paige Nealon from SACSO and then Marcus Knudsen from the FBI, because those two were working pretty closely together uh, on this this case. All I know is that I, I did receive 
I, I believe initially it was a call from Paige Nealon saying, we're thinking about doing this on the 40th year anniversary. Um, what do you think? And my initial thought, and I didn't tell Paige this, but I had lived, I had gotten involved with the Zodiac case and kind of the the online sleuth community with all the publicity that case got. And I was just thinking, oh, this this is just going to spiral out of control. And I was well into my investigative strategy that I did not want to be disrupted. <laughs> I just wanted to kind of, you know, my nose to the grindstone and keep going and not start fielding a bunch of phone calls and stuff. But I, I told Paige, yeah, you know, I, I, of course, I completely support that. And then they ended up, you know, formalizing it and announcing it. So we know what happened after the press conference, right? There's a lot of media attention, a lot of tips come in and still suspects are getting cleared. There's, there's no answer yet. I know from talking to, you know, Carol Daly and Richard Shelby, they, they often were like, man, if this doesn't get solved now with all this media attention, this will never get solved. Right. And so it's 2017, your year out from retirement. Mind you, you're pretty young. So what what made you set yourself up for retirement that young? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, when you're within the law enforcement circles, you know, those guys that are out there listening to this, they'll know exactly, you know, what I was dealing with. It's, I had what was called 3% at 50. Uh, this was a, a retirement system in which, in essence, considering that I started with the department at age 22, the way that the re- my retirement calculations worked is that I essentially max my retirement out at age 50. Not quite. I could continue to work and make a little bit more, more money, but it's one of those things where, you know, at age 50, you kind of have diminishing returns. And so I'm looking at it going, okay, 50 is coming up. The numbers are working out for me from a retirement perspective. And I believe it was September of 2017 is when I told my boss I'm retiring into March. Wow. So you've got this case. You've been working on it for 24 years. You're staring retirement in the face. You just eliminated your last suspect. And what do you do? You know, well, I was somewhat despondent after eliminating my last suspect. Um, and, you know, I, I'm looking at the tips that, that are coming in. I'm not seeing anything that was, was promising I really thought, you know, I may have just struck out on this. And I just had this, again, this this lucky break of uh, having a conference call on another case that I had involvement with. And the conference call was with me and a, at the time now, it did Captain uh, Roxanne Grunheide uh, from Contra Costa Sheriff's Office, and then uh, uh, Peter Headley, a detective with San Bernardino SO. And it just was one of those things, I won't go into great detail, but a little girl from this previous case, uh, Peter had been successful in identifying her using this genealogy aspect. And he had told me he had used this genealogist by the name of Barbara Ray Venter. And so I walked out of that conference call going, I got to give this Barbara a call because this seems like my last shot to be able to potentially identify the Golden State Killer. And so that's what I did is I reached out to Barbara and chatted with her. So this idea had been used to identify Jane Doe's, like the case you're talking about. Why do you think no one had used it yet to look for suspects? You know, I think in part it's that, you know, the, the genealogy community, you know, there's purposeful chasm that I think that they wanted to, to keep separate from how it could potentially be used within law enforcement. And I don't know if anybody had necessarily 
thought about how it could be used to identify an, an unknown offender in, in the case. Um, but in talking to Barbara, she had done something similar. She had we had a known offender in that same case that that Peter Headley was involved with, but we didn't know his identity. We only knew him as a as a Larry Banner. And she had, in essence, been able to use this investigative genealogy technique to identify Larry Banner as Terry Rasmussen. And I'm just going, well, basically, we're the same. Identifying the Golden State Killer is the same thing. We don't know him. <laughs> Larry Banner was in custody in prison and died in prison. We knew who he was. We just didn't know his identity. But it really was no different than, well, we got the Golden State Killer. We got his DNA. We just need to do the same technique. And that's where Barbara and I got talking. And, you know, this is where I had the good fortune again to have uh, the Steve Kramer, uh, who's general counsel for FBI LA stationed out of the Orange County office. He called me up out of the blue saying, hey, Paul, I've heard you're doing something with DNA on the Golden State Killer. I absolutely believe in what you're doing. How can I help? And so now I had a true law enforcement-based partner with federal authorities that was helping me, and we saw eye-to-eye -eye on how we needed to go. So Steve and I end up basically marching down this investigative genealogy tract, first having to get a source of DNA by going to the Southern California agencies and asking for their DNA, and that's where we got Ventura to say, yes, you can use ours for this technique, and then getting a lab, a genealogy-based lab, to get us a DNA profile, and then search a genealogy database. And so we got to the point to where right when we're about to get to where we're uploading the sample into GEDmatch, Barbara popped up, and uh, we have like the preeminent expert in this investigative genealogy technique. So it just worked out. Yeah. Now, as you, as you guys are planning this approach, did you know it would work or just hope it would work? Like, where were you in, like, your belief that this was going to happen? Well, what I had done, and I had done this before starting the roadshow to convince the Southern California agencies to share their DNA, is I had experimented with my parents' own DNA. Uh, they had both been tested with Ancestry.com. And so I got their DNA profiles out of Ancestry. I uploaded their profiles into GEDmatch. And then I experimented on how I would go about identifying, you know, these matches to particularly my dad using a male just because I wanted to replicate knowing that the Golden State Killer was a male. And after I did that, I became convinced, absolutely, this could solve the case. But it all depends on who's in the database. So it was one of those things that, you know, we're on pins and needles waiting for the jet match results to come back. And when they come back, it was a third cousin. And I was thinking, well, that's great, you know, because that's what I had used with my dad. But then Barbara's going, oh, because she knew better. <laughs> she was hoping for something a little bit closer, you know, in terms of relationships. But we just, you know, rolled up our sleeves and started working the genealogy side uh, in order to see where it would lead us. And it led Paul Holes to Golden State Killer suspect Joseph James D'Angelo and another pivotal moment in the case for the retired investigator on the day before his actual retirement. We're speaking with retired Contra Costa County Chief Investigator Paul Holes. Now, I think another pivotal point for you in the Golden State Killer case was the day you decided to check out prime suspect Joseph D'Angelo the day before you retired. The day before you retired, you drove up to his house, even considered knocking on his door. What made you go out there and what, what were you thinking? 
Well, you know, um, this was where after I had talked with Chief Nick Willick and he had told me a story about, you know, having a man, you know, standing outside her bedroom window in the middle of the night, shining a flashlight in. That's when I was like, oh, okay, if that's D'Angelo, that is sounding like the East Area Rapist. That's exactly what this guy would do. So I always made it a habit of any time I had a prime suspect, somebody I thought this could be the guy. I needed to know as much about that individual as possible. And, and this is where I'm calling up and leaving a message for Bonnie, his former fiance. She didn't pick up the phone. It turns out she was out of the country. You know, I evaluated his current wife, Sheridan, as whether or not I could reach out to her. You know, of course, I talked with Nick and then I'm like, I, I need to go check out where this guy's living to see if anything stands out, but just to understand a little bit more about him. And, uh, and I just, I drove up, it was, yeah, the day before I turned my badge and gun in and I drove up to Citrus Heights from Martinez and parked in front of his house. And it's really more to observe than anything. But as I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, of course thinking I'm going to be done. I'm, I'm going to be retiring tomorrow. And I had been down this path so many times before that I was like, what is the likelihood this is the Golden State Killer. Come on. I mean, a full-time Auburn police officer, how is he committing all these attacks? And so I thought, you know, I would do the the team justice by at least getting this guy's DNA so we could close him out so they don't have to put any more resources on him. And that's when I started contemplating just going up and knocking on his door, introducing who I am, you know, establish report. This is what you do time and time again and just say, hey, you know, your name has come up in this investigation. Uh, you know, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And oh, by the way, do you mind if I get a DNA sample so I can eliminate you and then you won't be contacted by anybody else ever again on this case? Did you see him? I did not see him. No, but the car was in the driveway. I knew he was there. And uh, that's when, as I started thinking about what do I know about him, and I, st I kept going back. There's this Bonnie in his past. You know, he's got the connection down to uh, to the Visalia area. He's got the connection to Sacramento. The behaviors during the termination process from Auburn PD that Nick passed on, I go, I just don't know enough about him to take that chance. I mean, he's he's got enough adding up that uh, I need to let this play out more. And that's when I, I drove away. And in your mind, looking back at that moment, what do you think would have happened had you gone up and knocked on the door? Oh, you know, there's a multitude of scenarios, um, you know, and I think, you know, D'Angelo probably would recognize me. And so he would know exactly why I was there. Uh, D'Angelo is somebody that had more guns registered in his name than what the DOJ system could print out in one printing. So, you know, the when I really look at it, if he saw me coming up, I think it potentially he could have armed himself and, you know, things could have gone very, very bad for one of us uh, at that point. Um, we know he's willing to shoot at officers and uh, quite frankly, he would have had to, had the drop on me. So I've said before, you know, not going up and knocking on that door was probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. Wow. Thank goodness. And I know we talked about this before, and it's really just a small thing, but the next day you retired, and this was very close to the time that D'Angelo also retired. So another thing you guys another have in common. Another strange parallel. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, and I did not know that until, you know, relatively recently. And, and uh, 
I kind of get a kick out of that just because I think about it. You know, we got that that parallel. He retired right, what at the end of March from his truck mechanic job, somewhere in there, right when I technically retired. And uh, as I've said, you know, I think my retirement's going a little bit better than his now. <laughs> I would agree. Just slightly. Well, speaking of that, you've now been retired for almost a year and you've been busier than ever teaching law enforcement around the world this new technique in identifying suspects. You're filming TV shows, recording podcasts, audiobooks, TV interviews. Was this the year you had pictured? No, not at all. <laughs> it was funny because after I, you know, I, I drove away from D'Angelo's, I retired. I set up a, a personal consulting business and you know, I was literally, even though still working the genealogy, I was still active with the team on Golden State Killer, but I was now reaching out to other law enforcement people saying, hey, you know, I can help consult on your case because I, I really thought that that's what I would be doing to help, you know, just pad retirement. And then obviously, you know, we had the the big break, the DNA came back on D'Angelo, he's arrested, um, and we had the press conference. And, you know, after that press conference, I gave multiple interviews to the press there at the, it was the SAC DA crime lab parking lot, and then my life hasn't been the same since. Uh, it's been quite a ride. I can't complain about anything. I'm overwhelmed at times. But, uh, you know, I'm sure appreciative of the, the fortunate set of circumstances over the decades that ultimately led me to be where I'm at today. I'm just happy that all your hard work paid off in so many ways. I mean, if anyone deserves all the success you're having right now, it's you. I want to ask, you know, looking back, not just on the last year of this case, but your whole career, what, what are you most satisfied with? You know, uh, it, it, obviously, this case is going to be the biggest case of my career. And I have other cases that I'm passionate about, some that I helped solve, some that are still unsolved that I hope someday to help solve. But it really comes down to, with this case, you know, the relationships that I formed with the victims and hearing their sense of, if you want to call it relief, when I was talking to them about D'Angelo, you know, their attacker is D'Angelo and that he's in custody and, you know, he's not going to get out. And different victims have taken that news differently based on their personalities, but some of them, the unbridled emotions, probably the most satisfying in my career. I can only imagine. What would you want us to take away from this? What legacy do you leave behind with this case? You know, I think it's, it has to be persistence, you know, because as I've said, I failed more on this case than I succeeded. I just happened to succeed with the big success with uh, helping find D'Angelo. And it's so easy to get frustrated by spending so much of your life trying to work this case only to have one prime suspect after another eliminated. And you just push away going, what am I doing? You know, I'm wasting my life on this one case. You know, and, and that persistence was there, and I think the caring was there, the caring for the cases, for the victims that not only that I formed relationships with, but also the victims that I knew just by name only because I read the horrors that they were they went through that were inflicted by this guy, and you feel for them. And, uh, you know, by just continuing on, you know, having that motivation to try to get these victims some sort of answer, you know, that... I think is where my legacy lies. I just kept at it. 
Never say quit. Never say quit. That's right. Well, Mr. Paul Holes, much respect to you um, and the hours you worked on this. I'll personally never forget the time that you actually spent away from cameras uh, and away from recording devices, dissecting this case with us, following up on leads. I remember we had come upon some evidence on the 1982 call that the Golden State Killer made to one of his rape victims long after the attack, and we shared it with you. And I think it was the very next day you'd already visited the location that the call was made to and you'd figured out where he must have been to see the victim and all of that. It it was quite impressive. And it's that kind of dedication and obsession and (laughs) persistence that we admire so much. So thank you for all you've done on the case. And thanks again for taking the time to talk to us on behalf of our entire team We thank you. We thank you. Could not have done this without you, and you're so generous with your time. Thank you for for helping us through this project. Yeah, no, I I appreciate the kind words, and I have enjoyed every single second that I have spent with you guys, uh, both on camera and behind the scenes. Coming up next week, she was victim 10 of the East Area Rapist, attacked and sexually assaulted as a 15-year-old girl. Home Alone on the Friday before the start of Christmas break in 1976. Chris shares the story of that night and her initial reaction to the identification and arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo, the man law enforcement believes to be the East Area Rapist. Chris also shares what it's been like to see D'Angelo in court and the special friendships she's formed with other victim survivors of the Golden State Killer. And for more on the Golden State Killer case, the complete Unmasking a Killer documentary series is available on demand with CNN Go. And you can listen and subscribe to the entire companion podcast series, including these new episodes, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joke Finciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for listening. <laughs>